Welcome to this edition of When the Biomass Hits the Wind Turbine, a discussion of sustainable living and what that means to you and me. I'm Jay Warmke. And I'm Annie Warmke. And today we're going to talk about what's happening to the birds, or is this really the canary in the coal mine? And we're joined by Don Hewitt, editor of Birdwatcher's Digest, and my reference to the canary in the coal mine, clearly, hopefully people know. Right, The coal miners used to bring the canary down in, and if the canary died, it was an indication there was toxic gas. So, so Dawn, uh, is the canary dying? Oh, man, I try to be an optimist, but in this case, uh, it's really hard to be optimistic. You know, a couple of months ago, um, there was a, a report in various scientific journals about how Relative to 1970, there are an estimated 3 billion, with a B, fewer birds living in North America right now. And that that was really um, kind of a cold water in the face to realize that that um, bird populations could be measured and had been being measured all these years, and that we've lost so many birds. Is um, this is this 70s. a decline across all species, or is it like specific species have been dying off, or what's the deal? Well, grassland species have been particularly hard hit. And, you know, actually there are some species and types of birds that have been increasing. Their populations have been increasing, even since the 70s. But um, it has been more than offset by the number of birds, individual birds that have been on decline. Grassland species, primarily, I would say, because of habitat loss. Those are birds like dick thistles and bobolinks. I'm thinking of, um, well, maybe also upland sandpipers, but birds that um, they need uh, grasslands, native grasslands like prairies, um, and not vast monocultures of agricultural land where um, pesticides kill the the foods, the little grubs and, and uh, insect larvae that they feed their babies, and uh, herbicides that wipe out the, the, quote, weeds that they need for their seeds. So that, to me, seems to be the biggest um, ex, uh, explanation why we've seen such a decrease in bird numbers since the 1970s. But, you know, there's something else. We often, we often think about when we were kids, you know, there were woods that are now subdivisions and neighborhoods and all that. We can all remember clearly examples of places that used to be natural areas and now they've been paved or otherwise developed. But we're thinking about that from our childhood, childhoods, which, you know, were maybe 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. But even that baseline we were starting from was so vastly different from the habitats and natural areas that were available to wildlife 50 years prior or 50 years prior or 50 years prior. We have never seen what the wildlife of North America looked like hundreds of years ago. We've heard stories about passenger pigeons, you know, 3 billion individual birds completely gone, a species wiped out. We can't even imagine how, how they darken the skies and, and pooped on the landscape. But um, they're gone now. And there's, there's no trace of them except for a few examples in museums. But we just don't know, can't imagine the abundance of wildlife before the Europeans arrived on this continent. 
we have a biased perspective, even when we think about how things used to be. Those darn Europeans, they caused a lot of trouble for everybody, not just the birds and the insects. So Yeah, no kidding, right. Yeah. Maybe people, too. Yeah, yeah definitely people. So yeah. so tell us a little bit about where you live now and uh, and what you do for a living. Sure, sure. Um, I live uh, in uh, kind of an urban setting in Marietta, Ohio. This is the world head- headquarters for Birdwatcher's Digest, which is... North America's oldest popular magazine about wild birds, written for the people who enjoy them. I'm a birder. I've been a birder since uh, 1979 when I took a college course in lab ornithology. But we could get extra credit for uh, hanging out with the local bird club. So I got up early before 6 o'clock on a Saturday morning, one morning for extra credit, just to go birding in Morgantown, West Virginia. And I loved it. I loved birding. I loved looking for species I hadn't seen before and listening for sounds that I had ignored. And uh, uh, it changed my life. It was a college course that really changed my life. So I've been a serious birder since 1979. Um, I lived in Bloomington, Indiana for 31 years, uh, and uh, I was a birder there, too. That's really where I uh, honed my skills as a birder. Um, and, and I got to go birding with really wonderful birders. And then um, at age 55, six years ago, uh, I... Uh-oh, you've told people your off. age. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, uh, five, six years ago, pushing seven years ago, I found my dream job here at Birdwatcher's Digest as the managing editor. So now, uh, man, uh, I am so lucky, blessed. Uh, I have... Uh, I get paid to think about birds and to encourage people to enjoy and respect and uh, be concerned about bird habitat and conservation. Well, and, uh, when we lived in England, I mean, bird watching was a big, big thing. It's a religion. There. Yeah. Is, is, it a, is it a big thing here in the U.S.? I don't hear that much about it. There are, I don't, this number is not right, but there are something like three million birders in, uh, in the United States. And if you look at all the people who feed the birds and are just aware of and enjoy the birds in their backyard, I mean, it's a, it's a big thing. But the really dedicated birders, like, like me, the people who go out specifically to find birds, to find new species, or just to enjoy migration, who's passing through right now and how that changes, um, yeah, there are there are hundreds of thousands of birders in North America, but but this is a much bigger country than England is. So um, don't tell them that, Don. So <laughs> yeah, let me I let know. me say something too: is that probably the bigger figure, which I haven't looked at recently, but I know right around two thousand eight or 2009, I was looking up about birds and bluebirds and things. And um, and I saw that people spent $3 billion, that's with a B, uh, dollars the year before on stuff to be birders. Yeah. So that's yeah. really an industry. It's not just people saying, oh, aren't the birds cute? Right, exactly. But even people who just say, aren't the birds cute? And I think I'll feed them. They spend a whole lot of money yeah. on bird seed and bird houses. Yeah. And uh, birds is kind of expensive, so 
Uh, and then there's optics, you know. Uh, serious burgers have to have binoculars and often <laughs> spotting scopes. And I personally have binoculars in my car, next to my kitchen window. I have them in my office window. And then I have my, my good binoculars that I take <laughs> when I'm operating. Your dress-up binoculars. That's right. <laughs> no, they're really good binoculars. They're Zeiss Victory SF binoculars, and they are the best binoculars in the world. And I'm really, really, really lucky to have them. Well, so. you're you're the editor. You should have them. So, I should have them. Yes, sure. that's right. So, so what did you want to be when you were a little girl, and how has that translated into what you're doing now? Oh, I never had a clear idea of what I wanted to be. I mean, even as a child, I didn't know, and in college, I didn't know, and uh, I didn't have a clear vision of what I wanted for my future. It wasn't until I landed this job at age 55 that I was like, oh, man, this is it. This is, Wow. Wow. Oh, this is it. <laughs> I didn't know. Um, but as a kid, I uh, I loved hanging out in my grandfather's farm fields and going for walks in the woods and just playing outdoors. Although I wasn't really a nature geek, as some kids are. So um, it th- that, too, didn't hit me until I was in college, when I really started caring about wildflowers and, and habitats and habitat diversity, biodiversity, all that. So... Um, you know, I, I loved being outdoors, and I loved canoeing in high school. I'd gone on long canoe trips and hiking and backpacking and all that, but, but I really didn't connect with nature, I suppose, until until I got hooked on birds. Okay, well, by the birding bug, they say. You were, you were saying that we've seen about 3 billion um, fewer. Well, we haven't seen them. There are 3 billion right. fewer birds, yeah, which is massive. Um Largely due to habitat and environmental issues, so so we're seeing the effects of this. But but how do we deal with that? I mean, what are some of the alternatives? Because I've always heard like, okay, you can feed the birds, but then they become dependent, and and you know that's not necessarily a good thing either. So so yeah. what, what can individuals well, do to help stem this problem? I would say feeding the birds is not going to help the birds. It can even be harmful if you provide feeders that then don't clean them. Dirty bird feeders can really be a vector for disease for birds. But um, there are things we can do to help birds. And uh, some of them include things like supporting small-scale local farms rather than large industrial farms that are so heavily dependent upon chemical fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides. Um, but you mean by supporting, you mean like uh, buying food from them or in what way? um, Yeah, if we, uh, I support my uh, local farmer's market. I shop there just about every week and try to buy as much of my food as I can from small-scale farmers. Um, They may not be certified organic, but often they are grown using organic methods, and that means they're bug-friendly, and bug-friendly is bird-friendly. Woohoo! I love that. Yes, (laughs) I agree. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And and even in our own yards, when we're gardening, if we can not use pesticides and herbicides, you know there are companion plants that can be effective at deterring uh, insects in our garden. Um, we we need to value uh, insects as pollinators and um, just as baby bird food because that's what insect love is. It's baby bird food and grubs in the yard and earthworms. We need to encourage those things by planting more native plants 
um, which birds recognize. They've evolved to recognize native plants, uh, and and native plants are you know um, adapted for native insects. It's this whole native ecosystem that is so valued. There's a recent study that said that. I'm going to get these numbers wrong too. But it's well, that's like that's plants. okay, Don, because we don't we make up most of our statistics here. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, right. so just make up well, whatever I'm, number you want. Yeah, give me give me give me five minutes, and I'll tell you the exact, the exact <laughs> accurate number. Well, ninety percent of all statistics are made up anyway. So. <laughs> okay, that's good. But uh, so I won't use the numbers here. But uh-huh. uh, native plants are so much more productive at providing native insects that native birds recognize and eat. So if there's one change you want to make to help the birds, it's to rip out your pretty plants and replace them with native plants. Well, native plants can be very beautiful, especially if you do companion planting and absolutely absolutely fantastic plants. It's just that we don't have education around those. Exactly. And we, have, we seem to think that um, exotic is somehow uh, classier or more special. But it seems like we're making the, the unfamiliar plants common. And the plants that have been here for thousands of years uh, are on the retreat, you know? Yeah, I think We I used to have know. thousands and thousands of acres of prairie, and now prairie is just in little tiny pockets here and there. And so what happens to the prairie birds and other species that were dependent on prairies? They're just, they're in retreat. Okay, well, with that in mind, I want to remind everybody that you are listening to When the Biomass Hits the Wind Turbine with Jay and Annie Warmke, reminding you it is indeed the end of the world as we know it. And thank God. Thank God. And apparently it's the end of the world for the birds because, uh, so so what you're saying, and it, it sounds like, the birds, the disappearing of the birds is a byproduct of an unhealthy and environmentally unhealthy lifestyle that we have adopted. Uh, it's, and if we adopt a more environmentally healthy lifestyle, then the birds hopefully will respond in kind. Is, is that? Well, wait, I want to say something about that because right. when we say it's the end of the world as we know it and thank God, the, the, what we really want to talk about is Things are happening, and we're not happy and sometimes very sad. We're very sad about it. But what can we do to put these uh, something new in its place? That's, that's where we're going with all of this. Right. Well, the end of the world as we know it is that world that has resulted in the death of uh, three billion birds. Yeah. So, so that's coming to do? an end. So, yeah. so, yeah, you were talking about supporting – um, you know, smaller agricultural activities. Um, some of the things I know that kill birds a lot are, are vehicles, tall buildings, um, you know, even cell towers, things like that. Are there things we could be doing that would minimize some of that damage? Um, yeah, two things come to mind right away. And uh, one of them is that in uh, New York, the state of New York, for all municipal or state-funded uh, buildings, they need to have glass, bird-friendly glass installed. Um, this is a trend that is increasing. Um, there are ways that glass can be built that uh, birds realize that it is an impervious surface. You know, transparent windows are completely foreign to birds. They just don't get the whole concept of, what do you mean I can see through it, but I can't fly through it? And that's why birds that's why glass and 
vipers are so deadly to birds, and especially when the lights are on at night. If skyscrapers would turn out their lights at night, birds wouldn't be attracted to them. But as it is, they see lights at night and, and try to fly right through their windows. It can be a gruesome sight. There are organizations called Lights Out Chicago, Lights Out Indianapolis, um, Lights Out Columbus. And what these groups do is first thing in the morning during migration, they walk the streets and pick up carcasses, sometimes oh. dozens or hundreds a day oh. of dead birds that have flown into buildings. That's so sad. Yeah, so just turn out the lights on tall buildings at night, or even your home, especially spring and fall during migration. Um, so uh, bird-friendly buildings or bird-safe buildings is one thing. But another thing is just keeping cats indoors. <laughs> I have six cats, including four kittens I got recently. And they're all indoors. I plan to build a catio for them next spring so that they can crawl out a window and have a safe space. They won't get hit by cars, and uh, I don't need to worry about mean people doing bad things to my cat. Um, but even as it is right now, my cats are quite happy and safe and healthy inside. They don't get fleas. They don't get ear mites. Um, but cats are estimated to kill millions of birds, wild birds, and other things, little mice and other nat native wildlife every year. So cats are not, domestic cats are not native to North America. It is an exotic, invasive species. And here where I live in Marietta, there are stray cats all over the place. And uh, I've seen countless cats with birds in their mouths, but it's not just stray or feral cats that are causing a problem to birds. It's domestic cats that are well-loved and well-fed. Uh, cats just by nature, by their instincts, are hunters. Yep. And they mm -hmm. will catch and kill wildlife. Yep, they can't help it, themselves. They can't help themselves. No. 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 They're not being bad. They're just being cats. Well, let, so, me, let me ask you a question. I wondered if you've heard of something called silvopasture. Not. Um, so this is a this is a concept when you're talking about things that we could do. So people who do have wide open spaces or even an acre of land or a couple of acres um, could create a more natural environment that actually changes everything for the birds and also for insects, uh, beneficial insects. So silvopastures, uh, I can't quote the exact definition, but it is about cre taking forest land and creating like meadows um, that could be grazed by animals um, interspersed in the forest. And they've been doing this in Britain for a while. There are several large projects there, and it has brought in species of birds that they haven't seen in 100 years have come back to the yeah, land. It's so invigorating to read about what's happening there. And new wow, plants. Cool. Old plants have appeared that were not there before, but were there 100 years ago. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yes, and I was yes. thinking that could be really something that could be downsized for lesser lands, you know, people who don't have 100 acres or whatever. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I even think of my own backyard, which is just an urban probably quarter acre, if even that, but it's a long deep yard. And um, I think of it as being potentially habitat. Uh, it still has grass in it. You know, a monocultural grass has very little 
uh, value to a bird in general, especially if it's sprayed with uh, herbicides or pesticides. But I should be planting oak trees and maple trees and, you know, service berry and uh, other native plant species. Once upon a time, the place where I lived was a forest. Actually, it was right across the street from ancient Indian burial mounds. But um, uh, there's no reason why we can't convert all of our lawns into wildlife habitat again. Uh, If we just change our aesthetic for what is a beautiful yard from a vast carpet of green grass, um, if, if we if we are willing to share the land we call our own with species that were there way before my ancestors got there, then I think we would have a very different aesthetic for how to make our lawns, our yards, uh, more accommodating to wildlife, including insects. Okay, well, so far we've come up with Shop at your local farmer's market. Get rid of your lawn. Get rid of all of your cats. That's one I no, prefer. Don't get rid of them. No, 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 no. I'm I'm interpreting this as I choose to interpret it. So I'm going to use this as part of my lobbying campaign to get rid of some of the. It cats. won't work, Don. Don't so, worry. But I was going to ask you one of the things that uh, I have heard because I do a lot of studying of the technologies and wind turbines. Of course, always get. The, the silly blame of killing off all of the birds, but I was actually reading something about the flashing lights on these towers, on cell towers, on wind turbines that oh, are yeah. there to protect small aircraft, um, yeah. actually attract birds, and the birds yeah. often circle them uh, and, and then fall to the ground primarily due to exhaustion or whatever and then True. are killed by predators. True as opposed to hitting these towers. So is that something that you're saying that's a true thing? It is absolutely a true thing. I've I've Googled it. I've looked at governmental reports on some of these things. Yeah, and sometimes there are like a thousand dead birds of one species beneath a cell phone tower. And often the lights are to blame. I mean, you know, I talked about birds just don't understand the concept of glass. They also don't understand the concept of artificial lights at night. Birds evolved with dark skies and dark landscapes at night. And uh, they navigated by the stars. Who knows what all these satellites in the in the sky are doing regarding bird migration. I don't know that. But yeah, it's lights on towers that can cause a, a, a serious problem, a disorientation among migrating birds. And, uh, you know, even um, on 9-11, where at the, at the memorial uh, in New York City, there are bird watchers uh, looking at the the night light display, and when they count a thousand birds circling the buildings, confused, they have the power to turn off the lights for twenty minutes hmm. and let the birds fly on. This happens every year; it's a thing. And then, after twenty minutes, the lights come on, and then a Eventually, the birds start circling and getting disoriented again because nine, September 11th is really uh, a time of high bird migration. So, yeah, lights on towers are a serious problem. Yeah, I'd heard some of the but studies I were have, showing going with solid lights, uh, which was less disoriented, going with blue lights rather than red lights. So it seems like it's a problem we can solve if we just decide to solve it. Well, um, possibly. But I have to dis- disagree with you, Jay, because... Um, Wind turbines really have been known to chop up 
birds. They have. Oh, now you're on. Um, now you're on dangerous. I was with you up with the cats. Now, now, I'm, <laughs> now I'm a little bit concerned with the wind turbines. Well, but placement mm-hmm. is a critical factor. So uh, I, I am a proponent of wind. I, I love wind. I would love to have a little vertical turbine on my roof, um, but. Um, placement of wind turbines along known migration paths is just a death sentence for birds. That uh, It really is. But there are bird-safe wind technologies. Uh, I'm all in favor of safe, bird-safe wind power. That's all I can say. There was a proposal to... <laughs> Thank you, Dawn. That was very good. Like, that was very good. Yeah. No, I think <laughs> I, we've got to share the space. I mean, you know, it's it's yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. There are places where birds don't migrate. Let's locate the towers there. That's right. That's right. You 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 convinced him, Don. <laughs> I hope so. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. If it's a bargaining <laughs> thing, let's bargain some cats away for and and then we'll put the wind turbines where you want them. I love cats. <laughs> yes. So um, so how how can we use the power that we have um, as people who care about birds or birders and all that money that they use um, that they spend, how can we get them to do a better job at uh, being more sustainable in their practices? Um, one thing, this is such a little thing, um, but um, every year I buy a duck stamp. Duck stamps are a federal program uh, intended really, I think, for hunters. I think you're required to have a duck stamp to hunt on a, a national wildlife refuge. But I buy one, it's 25 bucks. Um, every year, and uh, it gets me into National Wildlife Refuges free, although many National Wildlife Refuges are free anyhow, but all that money goes to buying wildland habitat. So it adds lands to um, National Wildlife Refuges. And it just, it provides, I, I spend 25 bucks, and I'm contributing to an increase in wildlife habitat in North America. So buying a duck stamp is a, is a small, easy thing. Um, I also support uh, organizations like Land Trust, Sycamore Land Trust in Indiana and the Laura Muskeg- Friends of Lower Muskingum River here where I live, and the Nature Conservancy, which buys land or uh, maintains conservation easements and ensures that this will be preserved as wildlife habitat in perpetuity. Well, I, I don't know how. I mean, there are, there are plenty of birders who are just recreational birders and are not seeing a bigger picture of... Uh, the impacts of their hobby on the environment. Uh, or, or, I mean, for instance, I fly a lot uh, to see birds. I'm headed to Oregon later this week for birding. I think it's going to be really good. But when I get back, I will uh, uh, pay a carbon fee, a self-imposed carbon fee. Um, there are some websites that come with high recommendations and, and uh, good scores for efficient use of money um, so that... The carbon I have contributed in my flights um, is mitigated by planting trees or <laughs> building wind turbines or <laughs> or solar panels. Somewhere. Well, well, Don, how can people contact uh, Birdwatchers Digest? Well, the easiest way is just to go to our website, birdwatchersdigest.com. And uh, and can they join or contribute or do something? Yeah, it's not really join. We are uh, we are a uh, private for profit company. Uh, we're not like uh, the Nature Conservancy or Audubon or Canal Lab of Ornithology. So it's not anything you join. It's something you subscribe to. 
Although okay. we're so personable and we're a small local <laughs> business, you know. That's I mean, great. There's just 13 people on our staff. Okay. Um, but if you go to our website, you'll get answers to all sorts of questions about birds. Uh, you'll get um, tons of content. We have I don't, thousands of web pages all about wild birds. Okay. Well, Don, um, we're going to have to cut it off here, but we want to thank you for joining us. Uh, you've been listening to When the Biomass Hits the Wind Turbine with Jay and Annie Warmke and Don Hewitt, uh, editor of Birdwatcher's Digest. We also want to thank our Emmy Award-winning producer, Adam Rich. Thank you for spending just a little bit of time with us. And as your grandmother told you while watching birds, the secret to a happy and sustainable life is... Play nice with others, clean up your own mess, and turn your lights off at night. Okay, okay till next time. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Thanks Don. Don. You can find more information on living sustainably in our unsustainable world at BlueRockStation.com. Yeah.